Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, and welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast, where we take you inside the big stories at the biggest clubs in world football and also provide you with expert analysis, insight on the issues affecting the game. I'm Ian McGarry, and joining me is regular pundit extraordinaire Duncan Castles. And I'm delighted to say that we've been also uh, joined by an old friend of the Transfer Window podcast, Mr. Liam Senior, ex-professional footballer and now UEFA Pro Licence Coach, who's assistant to the under-23s at Brighton. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. We're going to kick off with some news, as we like to do on the podcast, as uh, all our listeners know, and that's to do with um, the upholding of Chelsea's transfer window ban for um, the transgression of rules on the recruitment of under-18s from abroad. I'm sure most of you will know uh, FIFA uh, rejected Chelsea's appeal to them. Chelsea have now appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne with regard to trying to have the ban suspended or lifted. But at this moment in time, they are not allowed to sign players uh, in the transfer window this summer and then the following window in January 2020. Duncan, um, were you surprised that FIFA upheld uh, their own ruling? <laughs> and do you think this will mean massive trouble for Chelsea uh, with regards to players leaving? Because I think we should emphasise that although Chelsea are not allowed to sign players, players are allowed to leave. Uh, I wasn't surprised at all that FIFA upheld the ban. You only have to look at the details of what Chelsea have been sanctioned for. Um, so there was 29 separate cases of recruiting players under the age of 18 um, against uh, you know long-standing FIFA transfer rules. Uh, if you read around the story, you'll find that they, they've gone to very extensive lengths to to recruit these underage players in terms of money promised to the players themselves, agents, uh, their parents, um, setting up teams uh, to play outside the, the normal youth league structure um, so that they could field uh, effectively a, a team with, with multiple um, illegally signed players in it uh, and have them in a, a kind of shadow development programme at the club until they were formally allowed to, to play them in, uh, in the Premier League and the UEFA's uh, youth leagues. So that, I mean, the, the evidence against them uh, is extremely strong, clear cut. It's something Chelsea have been doing for years and years and years. Um, they've had, they've had problems, um, on this underage recruitment issue in the past and managed to get out of them by essentially paying off um, the club that they'd uh, acquired a player illegally from, Gal Kakuta being an example here. Um, and yes, you know, FIFA had such a strong case. Chelsea appealed it as they had to appeal to FIFA. I think although the club will say uh, and have said that they disagree with everything in FIFA's ruling, their expectation was that FIFA were, were, were going to turn down their appeal and that would then uh, get them to go to the next stage, which was to go outside FIFA and go to the Court of Arbitration and Sport and appeal against the ruling. And I think what Chelsea are trying to do with that Court of Arbitration and Sport appeal is obviously they'd like to win it, 
but I think they're realistic and they will realise the chances of winning it are are low given the history of other clubs who have uh, broken these rules and been successfully sanctioned by FIFA, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona. But the hope would be that because it goes to the Court of Arbitration of sport at this stage of the season with the transfer window just about to open, that the court, that CAS would suspend the, the ban while they looked at the case, allowing Chelsea to make transfers this summer. Um, and then once CAS made a decision, then the, the, the ban would probably be for the January window and the following summer window. That's happened before. Um, from what I understand, FIFA are uh, petitioning CAS uh, very hard to ensure that it doesn't happen in this case and will use the, the gravity of the transgressions and the number of transgressions as an argument to say that um, CAS should not allow Chelsea to have a um, suspended ban in, in this window and that the, the ban will be in place and therefore Chelsea will have to take... Um, major steps in, in terms of the uh, recruitment decisions about the well the huge number of players they have on on ownership of and on loan at other clubs um, to to build their squad for next season without being able to buy new players. And of course this comes against the bigger backdrop, Duncan, um, of what we've seen as we could describe as the uh, almost disinterest on we of Roman Abramovich in the club now since of course the visa issue of last year. Um, there's been speculation for months now that he would sell the club. Um, I've spoken to people in football finance who have told me that with a statute ban in place, which can improve the squad, the value of the club could decrease as much as 15% in that period. Do you think that would make it more attractive to potential buyers? And are we possibly seeing the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire? I'm not sure the transfer window ban makes that much of a difference to the sale of the club. Um, this is a decision for Roman Abramovich. Um, he is clearly unhappy with how things have been at Chelsea. He's, he's very unhappy with his treatment by the UK government in terms of having his, his visa um, to live in the UK removed. And we saw immediately after that decision was taken that he cancelled um, uh, the, the huge rebuilding plans um, in place for Stamford Bridge um, into which he or the club had invested a huge amount of money. Every time... Uh, Chelsea are asked about this and Roman Abramovich, which is people are asked about it, they say he does not intend to, to sell the club. Um, nothing um, on record from Roman Abramovich, of course, or from his uh, representatives. But if you talk to people who are interested in buying the club and, and people who are involved in the, in the sale of football clubs, it is very much um, an open secret or that uh, the, the club is available for sale, um, that there are investors uh, looking at it and that um, some of those investors have, have started to do due diligence on the purchase. Um, I, I think that's the bigger um, hurdle in terms of the sale of Chelsea. Uh, and, I, you know, I've, I've been briefed by someone close to one of the investors interested in, in taking over the club. And, and he said the complication is that uh, most of Abramovich's money that was invested into Chelsea is still owed against the football club in the form of debts held um, by the club's parent company. So essentially the club is about 
uh, figure off the top of my head here. It's about a billion pounds in debt to Abramovich. Now, if you buy that, um, you have to uh, take on those debts and cancel those debts. Those debts are held in um, offshore trusts. It's a very shadow, shadowy ownership structure. So in a due diligence process, um, the people have to be very careful to to find out exactly what they're buying, what liabilities they're buying, and what the actual ownership structure of the club is hidden behind these offshore trusts before they commit to a purchase. And I, I think, from what I'm hearing from people involved in this, that's the bigger hurdle rather than any sort of um, uh, damage, short-term damage, um, not being able to work in the transfer window would do to Chelsea. Because they are, I mean, let's face it, they've, they, they've secured the Champions League qualification for next season. So that, that's... Um, that guarantees them uh, a large amount of extra revenue and, and um, increases their attractiveness to buyer, even if they're even if they're purchasing something which is not in the best of situations at present. Well, it's been a monumental week in, uh, in for English football in Europe. Um, we had games on Tuesday and Wednesday, which many people described as unbelievable. In fact, I think. Um, I heard one interview with one manager where Unbelievable was mentioned 11 times uh, this week. So uh, I think we can I think we can certainly agree that that's the case. But the dust's settling a little bit now. Uh, Liam, I'm intrigued um, to get your thoughts as a coach on um, what Maurizio Pochettino did to turn the game on Wednesday night against Ajax round. Because remember, they were 2-0 down at halftime and looked like it was all over. What, what did you make of the, the substitution they made? And then, of course, the, the style of play which Tottenham then pursued in the second half. Yeah, I think to be a coach, to be able to make a, adjustments to the way that you play, you know, Tottenham have really been a build from the back kind of side, play through the thirds and try and play patient, attacking football. But then they bring on Llorente because of Ajax's clear weakness at centre-half in David Lynn, you know, a player who struggled in England with physical play. And uh, it was... The, the, the third goal comes from a long diagonal uh, hopeful ball forward from Sissoko. Lorenzo wins the first one against the Lit, and then they pick up second balls, which is a much more difficult way to play when you have so many technical players at, at Tottenham. And what was really fascinating and interesting to me was the fact that every player bought into that strategy and way of playing in order to get the best for the team. It was an absolutely amazing thing to watch. It was a bit like um, watching Graham Taylor's teams from the 1980s like can we not knock it yeah <laughs> which is, is something you just don't associate with with Tottenham Hotspur no you don't but you have to you have to use every weakness available in the opposition to, to win games of football you know Jose Mourinho is a massive exponent of that you know I remember when Manchester United played Ajax and Manchester United gave up nearly 80% of possession to win the game you know sometimes to win games of football you have to go away from the original way of playing and Pochettino again showed what a, what a masterclass of a tactician he is. I thought it was very fascinating from the first game. You know, he made a clear mistake in setting up with a back five, changed it at, at half time, was more direct even in the first leg, and without scoring the goal, they, they had a few chances from that, and it came to bear fruit last night, and, and, and uh, sorry, on Wednesday night, an incredible game. Duncan, you were kind of um, slightly confused by uh, De Ligt's performance, um, weren't you? Not confused. Um, I thought it was interesting to watch him in, in that situation. Watch him in the Champions League this year. He he looks exactly the kind of player that's being described to me by top scouts as you know this, this is a future top centre back in the world and in all areas of the game except 
um, when he's been confronted with those long balls down the middle. Um, and I, as uh, Liam just noted, the third goal came from De Ligt kind of being muscled off the ball by Llorente and allowing him to get that, that first header in. Um, I think he struggled in the first leg as well when when uh, Pochettino changed to go direct. Um, and it, he, it's, it's interesting because he, he has the physique and he has that aerial pr- presence attacking set pieces, um, certainly offensively, and I think defensively too, he's pretty good um, on, on defensive set pieces ball down the middle which makes you think if you're his representative whether you'd um, whether you'd advise against a move to England when you've got uh, so many big clubs interested in him or whether you'd say actually go to England because then you can round out that part of your game uh, there uh, and uh, and you know turn yourself into the complete centre back uh, while you're still a, a teenager or in your very early 20s so interesting to know what, what Liam's view of that would be yeah, no, I think for any young centre-half, it's a learning experience. I think De Ligt is an absolutely incredible athlete for his age. I think he's someone who's going to mature and grow. He's fantastic in possession. But lessons, I think Glenn Hoddle rightly said, you don't the lessons that those Ajax players would have made from last night and taken forward in their career would be absolutely huge. And one thing I think about the, the key of being a centre-half, albeit a young centre-half, is managing your line and managing your back four. And when you're dealing with long balls up to your renter, you need to make sure that your line's not too deep to begin with because then your renter can back into you and use his physical strength. If the delict was maybe four or five years old with more experience, he would have marshaled his back four. And that's where Daly Blint, who for me is not a natural centre-half, they needed someone who was going to keep the line high and then be, be brave in dealing with that, that long aerial threat that Tottenham possessed in the second half. Duncan, we talked a lot and, and a lot of people have made comments, especially Tottenham Hotspur fans, um, this season about the fact that they didn't sign any players in either of the windows eligible for this season. Does Lucian the Champions League final vindicate uh, Daniel Levy's policy? Well, I don't think it vindicates Daniel Levy's policy because if you ask Maurizio Pochettino whether he was uh, happy with that that strategy of addressing the season, I think I think you'll see his answer in well, not quite every press conference um, after they've had poor results uh, this season, but pretty much most of them. Um, you know, he's made it very clear that. Uh, they need more investment. They need stronger players. Um, I think taking these two games where they've got through um, on away goals as vindication um, that the squad's in the right place when they've lost so many games in the Premier League uh, recently and fell away uh, from Premier League contention because of that would be strange. Um, they, they beat Manchester City, yes, um, but we've talked on this podcast um, a number of times about how poor Pep Guardiola's record is in knockout Champions League games, particularly with Manchester City, you know, they're only having beaten uh, Schalke um, and one other a very weak side in the in the three years he's been at uh, Manchester City so far. So they, they were a, a team who were um, available uh, to get a tactical result against, as he did uh, in that game. And then to beat Ajax, I mean, Ajax, sensational quality in, the, in their squad. And I think a real shame for football that we won't see this team in a Champions League final because this was the only chance they had to get there. I think 
it's an indication also of, of what we talk about in the Champions League a lot, small margins making a difference. You've got you know, things like Zayic's um, shot in the last 10 minutes coming off the post instead of going in. Uh, and also that, that kind of maturity that Liam's talking about there, the, um, the Licht not being able to lead the, the line because he's young and he doesn't have that experience. So the decision-making, knowing how to get through those situations and games. I think one thing that was, was very noticeable to me was that in that second half when Tottenham rattled them Ajax's goalkeeper started hitting uh, the ball from hand long to the opposition as soon as he got it which is completely contrary to the way Ajax normally play and was essentially saying giving the ball straight back to Tottenham because I think probably 75-80% of those long balls were gathered by Tottenham players played back up to Llorente and immediately put them back in trouble so that, that lack of experience um counted against Ajax and then if you're, if you're going the underdog line you've got to note that um, Tottenham's wage bill was more than more than three times um, Ajax's you know 148 million last year pounds against Ajax's 53 million and that their, their wage bill uh, is almost twice um, Ajax's entire revenue as a club so that was a game that that Tottenham should have won and I think I quite like Christian Eriksen's um, very honest comments after the match where you know talking about it being a ridiculous game and um, saying that Ajax played the better football over the two games and, and essentially they were lucky to get through but they got through because they didn't want to have the embarrassment of, of being you know badly beaten at half time uh, that's obviously great credit to Pochettino not just in the tactical change but in getting his players to respond in that second half and, and fighting and uh, and working for those breaks and they got the break in the, in the final seconds of the game and went through and Liam it's interesting I think that um, apparently Pochettino's half time talk was really quite short and concise Harry Kane was actually the man who went in as captain and was shouting at his teammates and saying, what, what are we doing here? This is ridiculous, etc." Apparently, Pochettino simply said, if we score one goal, we're back in this game. Go out and get me a goal. And um, can something as simple as that, as a coach, turn the tide? Yeah, it can. It's all about timing for me. And I think key leadership is allowing and delegating to really important people within your squad. And obviously, Harry Kane as a player is influential in that dressing room. And yeah, I think you see it more and more in the modern game. You know, I think in, in years gone by, it was always the manager's message that was the most important. But when you delegate now, you give power and accountability to players. And, and what that does, it creates an atmosphere where they need to go out and do it themselves. And I've always felt there was an air of vulnerability with Ajax in the, in the youth in their side and the lack of experience and not being in that situation, the Champions League. And you could see, you know, they scored two goals in four minutes. Mora scores two goals. As soon as the first goal goes in, the atmosphere at the stadium becomes nervous and tense. And as Duncan's rightly said, as soon as that first goal in as well, Ajax just started conceding possession because they weren't in a comfortable place anymore. And that's a true test of a player. It's not when things are going well, can you take the ball and be brave when you're under pressure and you have to hold on to a game? It's um, been proposed, Duncan, that from next season, <clears throat> away goals may well be um, abolished <clears throat> in these competitions. Would you say that Liverpool's dramatic win against Barcelona and obviously Tottenham's dramatic win against Ajax are state a very good case for why they should be um, reinstated, well, not reinstated, but kept in the game um, in order to make these games just as exciting as we've seen. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had two of the most dramatic, entertaining Champions League semi-finals we've ever seen, and um, you know, the Tottenham game in particular. I think Tottenham were ahead in that match for I think it was 159 seconds of the entire two legs, um, and and they went from being behind and out to going through on one goal. Um, and, and it was on a knife edge because the away goals mean so much in these matches. It, it turns a game, instead of turning games from, from wins into draws, they turn games from wins into defeats. And um, that, for me, makes, makes these games so dramatic, makes them be played in a different fashion. The tactics have changed because of them. Um, and I, I think, interestingly, because we're going into an English, all-English um European final, which I don't think that will be necessarily as good to watch as the the Man City Tottenham, um, Liverpool Man City uh, from last season um, ties, because I think those games have been more exciting and and I've heard commentators talk about how they they feel different from Premier League matches. I think it's exactly because the, of the away goal rule changes the dynamic of the match and um, to throw that away uh, would, I think would be a huge mistake because there, for me there's no question that the Champions League is not just the, the best technical tactical uh, football we can watch it's also the, the most entertaining and dramatic when it gets into these knockout stages and, and you mess around with that format at your peril Liam what do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think the away goals rule is is what makes the Champions League so exciting. It gives coaches different problems in terms of do you attack a game at home or do you try and stop stop goals? And it keeps the the ties so level. You know, I love the away goals rule because it just creates so much uncertainty. It can, the momentum shifts in these two legged games are absolutely incredible. So hopefully they stick with the away goals rule because as well it encourages away teams to attack which means you have far more open games of football, which is what the, the neutral observer wants to see. You know, if you look at the aggregate scores of the last two games, semi-finals, lots of goals, lots of excitement, lots of drama. I think taking away that away goals rule allows the team away from home to sit back and, and rely on their, their home form in the, in the first or second leg. And of course, uh, the same scenario um, last season when Roma went out, on, uh, Roma went through on away goals, uh, beating Barcelona, having lost... Uh, 4-1 I think in Camp Nou and then 1-3-0 in the second leg in Stadio Olimpico so clearly there is a pattern here where Wiggles have been very significant and personally I'm really disappointed that they they dropped the toss of the coin and replaced it with the penalty shootout I think that's you know that was much more exciting (laughs) (laughs) so um, I I was speaking to a friend of mine who works for UEFA this morning uh, uh, and is in Neon UEFA's headquarters this morning and I was told that there's a a mood of depression about the fact it's an all-English final <laughs> because they feel like um, it makes the, uh, the final, which of course is the UEFA showpiece event in club football, uh, less interesting to the rest of the world uh, and more interesting simply to the UK or in, in, and in particular England, obviously. Um, obviously, we've had quite a lot of representatives and successes in both Europa League um, uh, over the last five years. Obviously, Liverpool reached the Champions League final last season as well as this season. Um, is it too early to talk of English domination, Liam, in, in European football? I think I think it's a great time in, for English football, the Premier League in general. And I think the coaches have contributed so much to that. If you look at Guardiola, Klopp, Pochettino, 
They're bringing a style of football, an exciting style of play. And especially in Pochettino's case with the budget that he's had to work with, they are making our Premier League so strong at the top level. And, and then you can see in the points totals now of the two top teams, you know, they're miles away. For me, the two best sides in Europe and, and then Tottenham have had to up their game and their levels to stay with them. So I think it's a great period for English football. And at the moment, you, you can see, especially in the Champions League, that our teams are now really flying the flag foot for the whole of European football, which is absolutely brilliant from my point of view. Duncan, are you a bit depressed by an all-English final? Well, as I just said, I, I think I'm, I'm with that, that neon um, UEFA argument that it's not quite as interesting to have um, an English final um, between teams who play each other on a regular basis. Um, I would love to have seen Ajax uh, in the final. I think it would have been great for football uh, to have uh, a team built um, on such a small budget um, with such young players, with you know a, a club that had said this is the only way we can compete on the European stage is to accelerate our youth development project, um, sell our players earlier, uh, bring our good youth talents into the team quicker, um, and then be canny on a couple of, of transfers per season, bringing you know guys like Tadic and and Daily Blind. I, I I agree with Liam. I think Daily Blind was uh, was found out a bit against Tottenham um, this week, but I think he he's turned out to be a much better signing for Ajax. I was surprised when they paid so much money for him in the summer, but I think I, I now understand why they did it. But it it would have been fantastic to see that strategy uh, and a. a a, a small budget club from a small country um, get to a Champions League final um, with really the only opportunity we'll, we'll have to see that that team together, particularly at a time when um, you've got a number of the biggest clubs in European football, led by Juventus, Andrea Agnelli, uh, pushing for a, a European um, Super League and trying to um, to aggressively limit the access of as many clubs to that European Super League as possible and trying to take more and more of the game's revenue um, into the big clubs' hands. So it would have been a nice slap in the face, I think, if, um, if Ajax had got there. <laughs> um, I, I, the English football, is it going to be dominant? Well, you have to say that at youth level, um, that their teams uh, are better than they've been, I think, ever. I think the, the, the record of, of uh, youth competition, international results is, is unsurpassed as far as English football is concerned. Um, and I think that's the real um, interesting side is to see how many of those players can get into Premier League teams and, um, and become dominant there because when we talk about English dominance in the Champions League at present we're talking about uh, teams that are all led by foreign coaches and uh, just going through the, the two se semi-final second legs in the Champions League and there's just six English players started um, for the two teams um, three of whom were fullbacks and, and we all know here that fullbacks are, are the, the least important players on the pitch don't we? <laughs> oh, harsh harsh <laughs> um, look as a Champions League final, what do we think, guys? I mean, is there a favourite in this? Liam, do you think there's one team's favoured over the other? I think if you're talking about preferences before, who are, Liverpool would have preferred to face, I think they would have preferred to face Ajax. Um, I think Ajax would have suited Liverpool's quick counter-attack and play, their, their speed of play. I don't think Ajax would have been able to deal with the intensity. In terms of Tottenham, you have, you have a team 
who know Liverpool so well. Pochettino has played against Coxon so many times. So I think it's, it makes it a lot closer. Uh, but for me, Liverpool will still be favourites. They're, they're the better side overall. But I just, uh, I just think that they would much have preferred to have Ajax in the final than face a familiar foe in Tottenham. And Duncan, interesting that you could arguably say that both um, Tottenham and Liverpool qualified for the final in the absence of their, their best player. Is it sometimes an advantage not to have the likes of Kane and Salah in your team because they are so significant in terms of that formation and that the way that that team plays, its philosophy? People defer, I, I say teammates, defer possession to that player probably more often than they should. And almost it's the case, I think, I saw it anyway, especially in Liverpool's defeat of Barcelona, that uh, possession was deferred much more equally to other players. I think um, I think in Tottenham's case, um, given the way that they beat uh, Ajax, which was through those direct balls and um, you know aerial dominance, I think having Harry Kane in would have would have been better for them because they could have played the same way, uh, the same type of balls, and then also had Kane's additional mobility and and quality in the ball. So I, I don't think it was a disadvantage for them. Um, Liverpool, yeah, I agree. I, I think um, I think Liverpool did a fantastic job in that second leg, but I think they only really had one way of going at that game, being 3-0 down, um, being without Salah and Firmino. Um, okay, they had an option. They could have played Sturridge in the, at centre-forward, but they decided to go for Origi. So they essentially had to go as high tempo, as high press, as aggressive as possible, as direct. Um, to, on the, the, the Barcelona defence as they could, which you saw them do. I mean, you saw from the very first minute of the game, they were flying into tackles. Um, you know, you've got Fabinho uh, basically flying into a, a two-footed tackle to stop Messi on the edge of the box as, as Robertson sandwiches him on the other side. The referee doesn't give a foul and then Robertson has a go at um, Messi um, slaps him in the back of the head, uh, accusing him of diving for it. And um, Klopp, I think he did what he had to do. And I think he, this is an interesting side of the Champions League for me, is that UEFA have clearly instructed the referees to be more like Premier League referees. Um, it used to be that there was a big divergence in the refereeing uh, in European competition and in English competition. But UEFA have, have obviously said to the referees, we like this high tempo um, tolerance of aggressive tackling. Um, it makes for good television. So uh, work that way. And uh, Liverpool were always going to be better at that than Barcelona. And they went right on the edge of it a number of occasions. I mean, I've seen uh, Liverpool supporters putting videos up of, um, of Jordan Henderson um, flying two feet off the ground into a tackle onto Sergio Roberto where he, he does just manage to get the ball first but then goes straight through the player's planted leg and only because Roberto had the skill to get out of it does he uh, end up not getting injured and you know lionising him for that behaviour I mean in five years ago in the Champions League that, that challenge could have been a red card because um, Henderson is out of control and endangering his opponent uh, in this case the referee did nothing Henderson went through that game without being booked so they did they, they, the, the setup of the team was great um, they played uh, to what they had um, Klopp as as Jose Mourinho um, commented in his uh, in his analysis of the match for for BN Sports, um, 
has to take immense credit for the way he motivated that team and got them to believe mm. that they could get through a situation where I, I thought they had no chance of, of winning that match. Um, I think they still had to, they, they had to have an exceptional performance from the goalkeeper. They had to have Messi on a night where he had, you know, three chances to kill the tie in the first half, missed all of them. But, you know, if when you're 3-0 down from the first leg, you really don't have many options available to you. And, and I think there is a bit something to be said for your argument that not having Salah there uh, added to uh, the the way they had to play and um, and the way they got the first goal and and the way they carried on throughout the match with you know lesser lesser storied players stepping up and coming up with um, incredible performances to to beat the favourites for the for the tournament. As a player, Liam, um, yeah. does over familiarity with your opponent what effect does that have on a game like a Champions League final? Um, because obviously. These two teams have met many times already. Uh, same personnel, same coaches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think one of the reasons that we've had such incredible semi-finals is because the clubs are not used to playing against each other, and therefore there's that element of the unknown. But I'm I'm afraid personally that we're going to get quite a kind of you know stilted, cautious, you know, not no one wants to lose this game type final, which you often find. When yeah. you get two teams who are very familiar with each other. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think um, when you play against a team that you're used to playing in your in your own domestic league, you have such a, an understanding of the way that they want to play. And you find in the end, you find two teams that can actually cancel each other out. Um, the only saving grace for me in terms of that is the I think the philosophies of both Pochettino and Klopp is to go and win games at football. I think even in the games we've seen between them this season, we've seen very tight affairs, but very exciting games as well. Now, I don't think either manager will go too far away from his overall philosophy, which for me is attacking the game, pressing the ball high up the pitch and scoring goals. So I do think it will be an interesting watch and I think it will be a, still a fun game to watch just because of the way that the two teams play. Yeah, I think, I, think I, I agree with that. I think the games we've seen between Liverpool and Tottenham this season have been good. And they've also got a lot of recovery time, both sides before the final, which, which I think is a, a plus. So we should should have teams in the best physical condition they can be at this stage of the season. So from Liverpool's glorious Champions League progression to Premier League contention, what's going to happen on the final day this coming Sunday. <laughs> Thankfully, we have a man very, very much connected with one of those clubs who have got a say in what's going to happen in the Premier League title race. Um, Liam, you're obviously around the club every day in your um, position as a coach of the under-23s and obviously Manchester City are visitors to the Amex on Sunday afternoon needing to win to guarantee the title. Um, What's the mood around Brighton? Uh, is, there, is there a kind of feeling of uh, we do have an opportunity to make a massive influence here? Um, or are we uh, looking at a club who are still celebrating their own survival? I think the overriding word that would uh, be worth it by is relief and, and yeah. excitement about moving forward. You know, we, we've been under a cloud for the last few months in terms of our own form, in terms of maybe being relegated. Obviously, that's been lifted now with Crystal Palace winning and us getting a, a really good draw away at Arsenal. And, one thing I'll say is Pep Guardiola will be very aware that in Brighton you have a team that really love to defend their box. And if you watch the semi-final in the, the FA Cup, Brighton came very close to, to getting a draw in that game. So it's not going to be easy for, for Manchester City by any means. They're obviously in the driving seat. 
But I just think in terms of us at Brighton, there's absolutely no pressure on the game. It's an absolutely amazing occasion to be a part of. And I know the lads will give it absolutely everything to do their best on a, on a professional level. And I think that's all you can ask for. Do you think that um, there's a, an extra pressure on Brighton in, in terms of being in that position, Liam, is quite unusual, isn't it? Where you've got effectively nothing to play for, but at the same time, you, you're, let's just say, you've got to play for the integrity of the competition yeah. um, by not just simply turning up. And so there is a pressure on Brighton to do that because they will come under criticism if City run out easy winners. Yeah, 100%. I think that's being prof- being a professional. Any game you play and you want to give your best, you know, and I think it's actually a very, very good time for us to have a game like this where we've been under a cloud for a long time. You know, performances haven't been great. Form hasn't been great. All of a sudden, that pressure of relegation is lifted and the players can go out and know without pressure they can go and express themselves against, for me, what are the best club team in Europe at the moment. I know they haven't made the Champions League final, but in terms of their form, you know, any other year, Liverpool would, would have walked home with that trophy a long time ago. But they can just go express themselves and test themselves against the best. And if you do that, no matter what the result is, that's all you can ask for. And as a player, is it quite fun to actually know that you can be a little part of history in terms of, say, preventing Manchester City from winning the title and being part of a, a team who contributed to Liverpool's first title in 29 years. 100%. These are the games as a, as a professional I wanted, always wanted to be a part of. You, know, you want to be able to go and test yourself at a very, very high-level game. In, ter- in terms of the coverage, I think the whole world could be watching. You don't want to let yourself down in situations like that. And I know every player, from a Brighton point of view, will want to give the best account of themselves for personal reasons, for team reasons. And that makes it it really incredible viewing on, on Sunday. I don't think it's going to be a straight foot, especially Liverpool score early in their game. Manchester City will know they're moving ball and it'll make it a really nervy occasion for them. I'm sure that's what Brighton will be looking for. Uh, and Liam, Duncan, Liam you, you had a long... Liam, you had a long career. Um, did you, were you ever in a situation like this where it didn't matter to your team um, in particular what the result would be in a game, but it was a, a match where if you won, you could uh, destroy the chances of the opposition to win a title or get promotion? I, I, I can remember a few occasions like that. The biggest occasion I can remember in terms of um, integrity of the game, I played in a Fulham team that needed to win against Liverpool, Rafa Benitez as Liverpool, um, uh, to stay up. And Rafa completely changed his team. He almost played a youth team and we won one nil. I think it was um it was the it was before the Istanbul final, uh, when okay. Liverpool went on to win. And he completely changed the team and we at Fulham went on to win one nil. And it meant Sheffield United got relegated and Neil Warnock actually wanted to sue Liverpool for putting out the team that, that Rafa did. Now for me, a manager's job is to is to do the best for his own club. You cannot worry about about other results. It's it's a thirty-eight game season. And in that instance, Rafa was proven to be right in, in a team that he selected. That amazing comeback and the energy levels Liverpool showed in the second half. So that's the biggest one I've been involved in where the integrity of a, of a game has been thrown into question. But all you can do over 38 games is concentrate on, on yourself. I don't think you can, you can rely on others to get you a result. Yeah, that's a different situation, isn't it? Because, because as you say, Rafa was, had, had the, the key... Exactly. game for his team to look after and, and was and concerned with that. How um how long were this how long did the celebrations go on for at Brighton after um after the team stayed up last week? Uh, I don't think there were so much celebrations. I wouldn't say it was a celebratory mood. I think it was more a okay. mood of relief. I think um yes it's a great achievement in the second season to stay up. 
But I think in terms of our performances this season, we know we've got a lot to improve on. So I don't think it's a time to be celebrating, more a time to regather um, and, and take a breath, be excited for what's to come. And remember the lessons that we've learned from this season in terms of a lot of things, you know, the way we played, the types of players we recruited for the squad. Um, I think a lot of lessons will be learned in the long term from our point of view. So I was speaking to one Brighton player <clears throat> who I've obviously shall remain nameless, guys, um, and I've put the, the uh, kind of proposition to him that if he scored a winning goal against Manchester City, then he would be Liverpool's player of the year. <laughs> to, to which he replied, but I'm a Manchester United fan. Yeah. <laughs> so figure out who it is if you like. Uh, so um what are our predictions then, please guys? I can't I can't let this go given the um enormity of what's happening this weekend. Um who do we think is gonna win the league and what do we think the scores are gonna be in those two key games? Duncan, you first. Oh, you've got to make the Brighton expert go first. Are you planning to contradict him? Is that why? <laughs> you, know, you know I always do. Yeah. Go on then, go on then. Oh, go on then, Liam, you go first. Um, oh, I think, I, I think if, I'm, if I'm a betting man, I think both the teams win. You know, I'm obviously a Brighton man, but the, the quality that Manchester City possess, uh, it's going to be a very, very tall order to keep them out for 90 minutes. But I do think it'll be tight. I don't think Manchester City will run away three, four goal winners. I think it'll be by the odd goal, uh, maybe two, but I do think Manchester City will end up winning the title. Duncan? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I can't see Manchester City having done what they've done in the second half of the season and, and, and chasing down that, that large Liverpool lead, um, you know, barely conceding a goal in the, in the last few months in the Premier League, letting it slip in this match. Um, but if they don't score early, I think I, I absolutely see what Liam's talking about, the tight game, a difficult game. And, you know, we saw the nervousness in their performance uh, on Monday night and you, you could you could see that again. But I would say um, City to win, um, maybe 2-0. Um, and then Liverpool, I think the, the, integrity, the integrity argument and the ability to, to cause pain um, to a team that are... Um, you know, desperate for a win to try and secure the title applies in spades to, to Wolves because they know um, they're good enough to get a result against Liverpool. Um, and I think quite a few on that team would uh, would enjoy um, rubbing it in their faces. So I, I don't see that one being an easy game, particularly if Wolves take one, uh, manage to score a goal early on the counter-attack. So I, was like, I, I think I'll go for Liverpool to win that, but also a, a very tight um, result there. Well, I think after the fairy tale of Anfield on Tuesday, <clears throat> Liverpool players probably do believe in miracles. And um, <laughs> but you, so, you, so you never know, never know. Um, it's going to be one of those nail-biting ones, isn't it, where um, everyone's on their radios and their smartphones uh, trying to see what's happening in the other, in the other team's game. And uh, I think it's going to be a really brilliant, brilliant Sunday uh, for everyone watching because the drama, as the drama unfolds, um, it's going to be very exciting. Just as exciting as the legendary quickfire round, which closes this particular Transfer Window podcast. And um, we're going for something a bit different today, people, um, because after, uh, or sorry, I should say, having been inspired by seeing the Stonehenge monolith-like lack of emotion, James Milner by reputation, in tears on the pitch at the end of the game on Tuesday night when they beat Barcelona to go through to the Champions League final. 
And then seeing Mauricio Pochettino, a man, of course, not noted for his emotions either, crying for probably 45 minutes through every interview, on pitch, in press conference, after press conference, mix zone. We want to see who we think is the biggest crybaby in football. Um, I'm, going to go to, I'm going to go to Liam first on this one, because this is a man, remember, who's been many a dressing room where there's been exaltation as well as destitution. And he must have seen a few people cry who he never expected. Liam, yeah. give us your answer. The one I remember the most was a big centre-half, Abdullah Faye. He played for Newcastle, Bolton, big, strong, as much as you can get. Um, and I remember at Hull, uh, we were 10 minutes away from being promoted. He gave a penalty away, which Cardiff scored. And uh, we had to wait for the result from Leeds to come in uh, to see if we're getting promoted. But in the meantime, he went and locked himself in a bathroom. And you could hear him through the dressing room, through the, through the corridor, bawling his eyes out. And he just locked himself in. No one could get in to, to console him. And it was one of the most striking memories of someone crying in football and the emotions that it brings. That's quite moving, actually, Liam. <laughs> well, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. here's me trying to be a bit jokey about it, and you've told us a story where we're all crying. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's the amazing thing about football. It evokes emotions that, you know, you can't, you can't describe whether you're a supporter, a player, even a neutral who's watched the two games in the Champions League this week. I just think it's an incredible sport that brings out the best in people. It brings out vulnerability in people. And that was the best example I could give for my career. And can we ask you, have you ever cried about oh, football no. match? Oh, so many times. Missing out on the effort in the FA Cup final, having to walk past the trophy. I, um, yeah, I bawled like a baby. And then, but yeah, it was a great experiences. And when you get those extreme emotions, they're, they're, they're a wonderful thing to, to, wonderful memories to treasure, whether it's a negative or a positive. In the end. And now, <clears throat> we pass the mic, as it were, to one of football's biggest cynics, the great Dr. Duncan Castles, <laughs> who we wholly expect uh, to give us an answer which will make us both laugh and probably cry with laughter. <laughs> um, I just I have to say, I would never have expected Abdullah Fai to be um, yeah. the guy that Liam picked out. That's a great story. Really. Um, my biggest memory of a football player crying. Uh, would have to be um, the last time we had an All-English Champions League final um, and we had that moment when uh, when John Terry um, decided to break the, um, the uh, pre-decided penalty kick um, order against Manchester United because he had the opportunity to take the penalty um, that would win the Champions League for the first time for Chelsea uh, and as we all remember um, slipped on the turf and sent it wide of the post uh, and Manchester United turned the game around and there are those famous pictures of, of uh, John Terry in tears in the Moscow uh, rain as he walked off the pitch um, and one of the reasons that strike comes to mind is I remember having a conversation um, after the match in Moscow in the stadium about what had happened uh, and you remember that that was the, the season where um, Jose Mourinho was sacked as um, Chelsea manager um, and one of the individuals who was um, instrumental um, in his dismissal was John Terry um, and obviously there was a, a significant amount of bad blood between the two going forward uh, and that, uh, the conversation after the game we talked about what happened to Terry and uh, the comment was uh, yes, God put the, the European Cup before his eyes and he took it away from him um, and that's uh, 
if you're talking about emotions in football, I think that uh, sums up some of the, the you know the strong emotions and and uh, the conflicts that can happen in the game. Um, and yeah, that's that for me is the the the, the, the real memory of or the one that struck came to mind when you asked about crying footballers. I think the phrase is karma, Duncan. That you're, you're searching for there in terms of Mr. Mourinho. Um, <clears throat> well, indeed, indeed. Um, of course, <clears throat> John Terry did go on to enjoy Champions League success with Chelsea in 2012 when he didn't play but did appear on the pitch wearing his shin guards for the celebrations. So maybe his tears then were just about the fact that his shin guards were a bit kicked. So with that, people, it's time to draw this particular episode of the Transfer Window podcast shut. Um, we are very grateful for your <clears throat> participation. Therefore, if you want to continue the debate, and we'd love to hear about your uh, versions of the biggest crybabies in football, if you want to contact us, you can do so on our own uh, pod- transfer podcast at transfer podcast account on Twitter. Uh, Duncan is at, uh, at Duncan Castles. And Liam, would you like to tell everyone um, your own uh, Twitter handle, please? Yep, it's at Rosinia underscore Liam 23. See, it's even less complicated than mine, which is <laughs> at Garbo SJ, as you all know, because you always ask me what it means. Uh, if you liked what you heard, and thousands of you do, please return the favour and give something back and go onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. That helps us to increase the uh, community who enjoy this podcast three times a week. And remember, we will be back next week to uh, satisfy all your podcasting needs on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Uh, until then, we wish you uh, goodbye. We wish you to enjoy what will be an incredible weekend, certainly Sunday of football in terms of the um, climax of the Premier League. And we shall be talking about that on Monday. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.